Now, that's good for me, but can we redirect that thanksgiving and praise and put our hands together for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He deserves it. He's worthy of it. Let's lift it up before him. Greetings Asbury family. It is wonderful to be with you in this preaching and sharing moment. Uh, being here for the very first time uh, to be able to share in the chapel. Thank you for the warm invitation, for the warm welcome. Thank you to our administration. Thank you to those students and faculty members who came together uh, to develop this uh, series that we are engaging with. It is an honor and privilege to be here. Thank you to my brother, uh, Dr. Alvarez, for your friendship, for your guidance, as well as for that great introduction. I got to carry you around a couple places <laughs> before I go. Uh, we're thankful and grateful to have, I'm going to let you know, my favorite worship leader, the Reverend Dr. Kelvin Walker, who led us in a powerful time of worship with the worship ministry and band. And so it, it is, uh, the table has already been set. Uh, well, many of you don't know me, uh, but I want to have an opportunity to know you and to learn and to grow uh, and to develop together. The first thing I've got to let you know that I, I believe that preaching is a participatory pedagogical moment. <laughs> you, it's already been practiced, it's already been experienced. I invite you to join with me in this preaching moment, that I'm not just preaching at or to you, but rather we are crafting this message together in the spirit, amen? Uh, I've let you know I'm uh, bringing greetings from New York City. Uh, I'm thankful and grateful to also have a colleague and friend, Dr. Stanley John, who is here with us as well, also from New York City. And uh, I'm thankful uh, that uh, it is a city that is busy and fun and joyous and complicated, and I love it. And so I bring greetings uh, from New York City. Uh, I uh, note that uh, New York City is divided into uh, five counties we call boroughs. Uh, and I hail from uh, the, the borough with the greatest population, Brooklyn, New York. Now, now, if you want to pray for me and our family, if you look at a map of Brooklyn, New York, place your finger right in the center of Brooklyn, New York, in a neighborhood called East Flatbush, uh, and that's where I, I'm located and where I serve. And so if you're ever thinking about Brooklyn, put your finger right in the center of it uh, and lift us up in prayer. Uh, I also bring greetings from uh, my family, uh, my, my wife, uh, Flavien Galbraith, uh, who was originally born in the Dominican Republic and serves as a social worker uh, in New York City, uh, to our three wonderful children. It's all right, I share my little family with you just for a moment. <laughs> my, my family, my 13-year-old son, CJ uh, Galbraith, uh, my uh, turning 11 on Saturday, Swifty uh, Malia Galbraith, uh, as well as my five-year-old old uh, baby boy Grayson, pray for us. Amen. Uh, 
Uh, in, in addition to uh, my family, I've had the honor and privilege uh, for, uh, to be able to serve uh, a 102-year-old Christian and Missionary Alliance congregation founded by our, our denomination's first church called Alliance Tabernacle. And so I'm honored and privileged to be able to serve there for the last 14 years uh, in service and in ministry. Uh, additionally, I have the opportunity over the last 10 years to work along some other pastors in Brooklyn to start a nonprofit organization to address gun violence in our community. It's called the 67th Clergy Council, but we call it the God Squad. Uh, and we have grown to be the largest clergy organization in New York City uh, doing anti-gun violence work with a staff of 20 in multiple sites uh, and uh, some wonderful and amazing things happening uh, as we see not just a reduction but an end to gun violence in the city of New York. But, but with all of that, I remember over 14 years ago as a young pastor coming to Brooklyn to an aging congregation uh, that had a building that was $1 million in debt in a violent community with a baby on the way and on a preacher's salary. <laughs> uh, I, I literally was trying to have odd jobs and things just to be able to keep it together, but I had one of those moments where I had a mental, physical breakdown. I was overwhelmed, it was just too much. And, and in those moments of being overwhelmed, in those moments of feeling as though I couldn't see my, my way out or my way through, it was a passage of scripture that continually and consistently came to me to encourage and strengthen me out of that deep, dark place. It was read, but if you don't mind, can I lift it up again? Ephesians, the third chapter, verse 20, and I'm thankful for the various translations, but you've got to forgive me. I've got to quote it like my 99-year-old grandmother would quote, quote it. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly, above all we could ask, think, or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you would help me in this preaching moment, I'd like to uh, lift up a message, and I'd ask if you could help me declare and uh, lift up this message by turning to someone, giving them a wonderful Asbury smile, and simply declare to them, we shall overcome. <laughs> now, we're going to do it together in unison because you're going to catch it. Look at somebody else. And tell them, neighbor, oh neighbor, we shall over. Ah, ah. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe that we shall overcome someday. One of the songs that was the soundtrack to the civil rights movement, I think can be applied not only to us, but to this great lecture series. I'm deeply honored to be part of this inaugural series honoring the life and the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Gene Austin, who I believe knew something about overcoming. 
As the first African-American graduate here at Asbury Theological Seminary, he entered into the seminary in a seemingly overwhelming moment. He, along with Douglas Fitch, enrolled in 1958, a moment where they were engaging in racial integration when everybody, including the institution, did not embrace it. It appears that even some in administration who worked to make sure that they could do the least amount to integrate this great institution. It's come to my knowledge after the readings of the journals that you've lifted up with Dr. Hampton and others, that in their first semester here at Asbury, a vehicle drove by and gunshots lifted up and bullets hit Morrison Administrative Building where Fitch and Austin had their rooms located. This had to be overwhelming. Yet despite these overwhelming elements, we celebrate Gene Austin today for not being deterred, but rather being determined to overcome, to graduate from Asbury with a Master's of Divinity, to go on to earn a PhD, to serve as a school administrator, and to serve the Free Methodist Church continually and consistently working to tear down the strongholds of racial injustice. I, I believe he had a call and a responsibility, but the thing about history that I love is that we are called not to just reflect on history, but to learn and embody it. May I argue that while there were challenges then, there are still significant challenges today. The challenges, concerns, and issues for us individually, but also may I suggest that there are challenges concerning our racial dynamics socially and collectively even today. But the question is, what do we do? Do we lift our hands in apathy and say, what can we do here? in Wilmore, or do we lift our hands with anticipation, knowing that we shall overcome? Uh, as we're entering into this time of gathering, I, I believe that we are called to overcome. And so if you don't mind, I'm just gonna do it like I do it in my church in Brooklyn. I, I came all the way from Brooklyn. <laughs> to, to let somebody know that we shall overcome. As we look at this passage just for the few moments that we have together, we find uh, the Apostle Paul in one of those overwhelming moments. Th this letter written while he was in prison in the midst of a challenges that were present within the church in Ephesus. What were the challenges that were there? There were divisions and ethnic uh, strongholds that had been built up that he speaks to that need to be torn down. I believe that, that Paul has a word for those folks then, but I also believe that it's a word for us today. I believe that we should walk around within our own hearts as a seminary with a call in the direction that we shall overcome. Now, when I say we shall overcome, I believe it means several things. I believe when we declare we shall overcome, it is first a resistance to the current reality. When we say we shall overcome, it's a resistance to the current reality. Here in this passage a little bit earlier, Paul writes, for this reason I kneel before the Father. 
Uh, here, here it is. He, he sees these divisions that are present. He sees that there's tensions between those from the Jewish tradition of Christianity and those who are Gentiles. For this reason, he kneels. It's interesting, he does not avoid. He does not cover up. He does not exclude. But he says, I cannot be comfortable with what I see. Not only in Ephesus, but also within the church. It is Dr. King who talks to us about this idea of being maladjusted. That we are not comforted by the way things are, but we are discomforted and dislocated when we see things that are ought or that are wrong. Here we, we find uh, that uh, Paul has a passion for this because we, we read earlier that uh, he is in prison because they have suspected that he has brought a Gentile into the temple. And he, instead of leaning back and saying, we don't talk about those things in worship experiences. And saying, instead of saying that there's a time and place for this and this is a social issue and not a theological issue. He instead dives head in and speaks to the tensions and the realities that are present. The ethnic barriers, the suspicion, the religious systemic oppression that is present. He is not silent, he does not avoid, he leans into it. May I suggest that we are called to lean into this? Gene Austin knew about this. He, he knew not just uh, uh, that there were wonderful relationships that he built, uh, but there were systems he was engaged in dismantling. I know we get uncomfortable when we talk about systems, uh, but please understand and realize uh, that Gene Austin was facing a system. What was the system? Segregation. And his very presence was a rebuke and a resistance to a warped hermeneutic uh, that brought division and oppression. Here it is, systems that seem to be so strong and seem to be so insurmountable, but I still believe we shall overcome. It is James Baldwin who says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. I call us. I urge us. I admonish us as a faith community to not turn a blind eye to injustice or systems that support racial segregation. It may have changed its name, but its presence can still be found. Can we work? Can we journey? Can we believe God for an opportunity to say, I am not satisfied with the way things are, but rather I believe something has to change? Now, now, I know it seems great. I know it seems almost impossible. But your very presence, your very voice is a resistance. When we declare we shall overcome, it is a resistance that it won't always be like this. Yeah. That in the words of my 99-year-old grandmother who I just laid to rest last month, uh, that trouble don't last always. When we say we shall overcome, yes, it is a resistance to the current reality, but also it is calling us to respond with theological praxis. That yes, we resist, but yes, we also engage in embodiment. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. 
I pray that according to the great riches of his glory, that he may grant me the strength in my inner being by the power of his spirit. Theological praxis is an embodiment of what we declare and what we believe. It's not just what we say, it is what we embody and what we do towards working to make things right. Once again, uh, that great prophet from Harlem, James Baldwin, says, I don't believe what you say because I see what you do. So the question is not what we declare, it is not in our creeds, it is not necessarily in uh, the, the wonderful platitudes that we lift up and they have their place, but are we able to follow it out and follow it through with the action that is needed? I, I believe uh, in kneeling before the Father because I, I don't believe that prayer is something that is passive. I, I believe that prayer is participatory as well. I believe that prayer is a protest to the way that things are broken and fractured. I believe that prayer is when we not only speak with our words, but also live with our lives to make things right. I believe that as a church, we are called to pray and then be moved by that prayer to an action that seeks to dismantle the way things are. It is Dr. King in his letter to the Birmingham jail from Birmingham jail who declares it uh, that in those days we are calling for the church not just to be a thermometer that records the ideas and principles of popular opinion, but a thermostat that transforms the mores of society. Yeah. That when we pray, I believe things begin to happen. Amen. That as we go before our God and kneel before him, we get up from our kneeling and get to action. There's my former seminary classmate and author, Rich Velotis, who says that many times we preach to the soul but could care less about the system. I, I believe that we are called, yes, to preach to the soul, but we're also called to preach to the systems. We're called to tear down the strongholds that have been. Now, now if you're looking at me saying, who is this radical guy from New York? I I'm coming from the Bible. Uh, as I would say in Brooklyn, I was I say in Brooklyn, I, I got a side order of scripture to back up what I'm talking about. <laughs> the, the Bible lets us know in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And I believe that there are things we are called to pray and to work towards dismantling. He says, for this reason, what is the reason? Racial hatred and violence for us today, systematic racism, redlining, and the school-to-prison pipeline, for this reason I kneel. Broken criminal justice systems, generational poverty, and senseless violence, for this reason I kneel. Opioid epidemic and chronic depression, for this reason I kneel. Church hurt and burnout, uh, demonic deacons, envious elders, angry members, uh, and impatient pew folks. Uh, this reason I kneel before the Father. But I believe that when we go before God in prayer, we get up with an understanding that things have to change. I'll say it, say it this way. As I just shared, a group of us pastors got together to try to address the violence in Brooklyn. Around 2010, uh, there was a police-involved shooting in my neighborhood of East Flatbush. Uh, there's debate whether the young man had a gun or did not have a gun, but, but the community uh, became an uproar 
The community was upset and angry. Uh, businesses started to get looted, and there was tension on the streets. When we arrived, just as some pastors on the streets, we saw that the community was up, upset, but we also saw the police had galvanized themselves as well. There were horses and shields and helicopters and dogs, and there was a tension that was present. On one side, the community is getting riled. And on the other side, the police are getting riled, and it feels as though there's a powder keg about to explode. In that moment, uh, uh, as we're trying to calm things down, uh, one of the other pastors uh, with a bullhorn looked at me and says, Charles, you're always talking about prayer. Pray. <laughs> what do you pray <laughs> in the midst of uncertainty? I, I, wish, I wish I could tell you I, I could remember the prayer that I prayed. I, I wish I could say that I uh, went to uh, uh, the catechism. I, I wish I could say that I pulled from uh, the great church fathers. I, I wish I could talk about the, the, the sun rising and, and fall, the moon going down. I wish I could say I talked about the stars. I don't know what I talked about. But I do know I called on Jesus. <laughs> And when I opened my mouth and called on his name, we saw in that moment the violence, the tension, the anger subside. People went home on both sides, and there were peace. We shall overcome. You are called, I am called, we are called to embody this great gospel. Either we believe what we say or we don't. Is it powerful enough to engage even on the street? When we declare we shall overcome, it is a resistance to the current reality that is present. It is a response calling us to respond with theological praxis. Lastly, it is this. When we declare we shall overcome, it is to reimagine with prophetic hope. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. It's this idea that Evelyn Parker pulls from her text called emancipatory hope. Emancipatory hope, she declares, is an expectation that the dominant powers of oppressive isms will be toppled when we have agency in God's vision of dismantling these powers. It's Gayrod Wilmer's observation that Christian hope peers into the mystery of the future with expectation and deals the cards that are already there with the assurance that a winning combination, though difficult to come by, is somewhere in the hands. Evan Parker once again declares that Christian hope moves us from the morass of life and confronting the state of how things are with the possibility of how things can be. It is one of the greatest preachers to ever go before a pulpit. Uh, of course, he's from Brooklyn. Uh, uh, that, that great Gardner C. Taylor who talks about this idea of perennial hope. You, you know, like the perennial plants uh, that every season keep on coming back up, no matter how bad you cut them and no matter how much things they go through, they keep on coming back up. He talks about an idea of perennial hope that keeps on showing back up. We shall overcome. May, may I suggest uh, uh, the title 
as well as the soundtrack to the civil rights movement. Before it was a civil rights anthem, it was a black Methodist pastor's prayer. Uh, th this song, We Shall Overcome, is adapted from Charles Tinsley's I'll Overcome Someday. Tinsley, someone who was uh, born 14 years before the end of the Civil War, born the son of slaves, but kept on singing and believing we shall overcome. By age five, both of his parents had died, but he kept on in his heart of hearts singing, we shall overcome. At age 17, he taught himself to read. He moved to Pennsylvania and found employment as a sexton, a janitor at the Calvary Methodist Episcopal Church. And there he kept on singing and praying, we shall overcome. He took night classes and later correspondence courses, eventually becoming ordained as a Methodist minister and serving in various appointments and inevitably going to serve as a presiding elder in Delaware, keeping, keeping on singing, we shall overcome. He kept on singing that so hard that in 1902, he was appointed as the pastor of the church he used to serve as a janitor in. He kept on singing, we shall overcome. May I suggest that he is not the only one who is called to sing it, but we are also empowered to sing it today. We sing it because we have a foundation that declares that light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it. We're able to sing it today because in this world there will be trouble, but Jesus said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. We sing it because the Bible lets us know evil does not overcome good, but good overcomes evil. We sing it because from God's understanding of who we are, we are God's children and we shall overcome because according to 1 John, the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Would you help me declare it on today? We shall, you got it, we shall, one more time, we shall, the reason, can, can I just go on home? The reason we know we understand that we shall overcome is because it is not by our power, it's not by our ability, it's not by our ingenuity, it's not by our strength, it's not even by our wonderful education here at Asbury, but we overcome because of him who is him, now unto him, who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly. Above all, we could ask, think, or imagine. Someone asked the question, who is the him? Well, when they ask the question, who is the him? The him is the one who be was before, was, was, and is even after is, will be. Him is the one who gives heat to the sun and shine to the moon. He gives twinkling to the stars, easy brother, and he gives wet to the water. He gives crispness to the air, viscosity to the oil. He is the one. Is there anybody who knows about him? Him is the one who gave Noah an ark, Abraham a promise, Jacob a ladder, and Joseph a dream. 
Him is the one who gave Moses a rod, Joseph a dream, the prophets a word. He gave David some music, and he gave Solomon some wisdom. Is there anybody in here on this morning who knows who he is? He is the one who gave his only begotten son, who gave his only begotten son named Jesus. Jesus who gave sight to the blind, healing to the broken, life to the dead. Does anybody know who he is? He's the one who gave his head to some nails and his hands to some nails. He's the one who gave his body to a cross and his body to a grave. Does anybody know who he is? He gave his body to a grave. But my Bible tells me that early on a Sunday morning, the grave had to give it back. Now unto unto him who gave his spirit to sustain us and his power to make us holy. Now unto him because of who he is, we shall overcome.